Well, the next four weeks, uh, we're going to see a lot of action in chapter 6 through 16, starting there in chapter 6 this morning. Let me mention to you that we <clears throat> had prepared uh, for two live preachers this morning, one in the Worship Center for Blended, one upstairs for the, uh, the Modern and Venue, and Brad Franklin, who's an excellent student of the Word, was the other uh, preacher that's prepared. So he's going to go ahead uh, tomorrow. And I preach that message, and I would challenge you, after we go through Revelation 6 and 7 and part of 8 this morning, you'll understand that there's a lot there. I would challenge you to go back on Tuesday. Uh, Brad's message will be uploaded to our app and to our website. It'd be a great review for you to go back and also uh, hear from another one of our teaching pastors here. Well, let me give you a word of encouragement <clears throat> that I think would uh, strengthen your faith and your trust in God's Word this morning. You know, one of the strongest indicators of the reliability of Scripture, of the Bible, is a unified message. Uh, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, you've got 40 different authors, all different backgrounds, all different uh, skill sets and vocations, uh, writing over 1,500 years, and yet the message in, from all those authors, the message of this book is unified, and that unified message is only possible because of divine inspiration. And I want to give you an example of that this morning. You know that the Old Testament and the New Testament mesh um, Think about the birth of Jesus. You know that all the prophetic words in the Old Testament were completely fulfilled in Christ. But here's another example as far as where we are this morning. Um, the book of Daniel was written 500 years before the book of Revelation. And yet when you look at, at Daniel and Revelation, those two books are closely interwoven in their prophetic message as well as the theme. Uh, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, maps out a, a calendar of events for the nation of Israel that spans many, many centuries. In fact, in Daniel 9, he mentions uh, 70 uh, weeks, not, not a seven-day week, but each week is a seven-year week. So his 70 weeks, Daniel maps out 490 years of what's going to happen with God's people, the nation of Israel. Now, that 69th week, or the uh, 483rd year, culminated when Jesus rode in Jerusalem and presented himself as the king of the people of Israel. Of course, we know that a week later he was uh, rejected and he was crucified. And at that point, after that 69th week, there's an interlude that started, an interlude between week 69 and week 70. We live in that interlude. Some uh, have called it the, the church age. It's during that interlude that God has been calling people to himself, both Jew and Gentile, and he's been calling those people to himself and forming the church to carry out his work. Now, when that interlude ends, that 70th week that Daniel referred to is going to begin. And that's what we're looking at beginning here in chapter 6. The seven years of tribulation, which will end at the second coming of Christ. That's the 70th week. It's seven years of Israel once again being center stage in world events. It's seven years of Israel being given the opportunity to complete the tasks that God had initially given them. Now, I'd also mention to you that the events we're studying today are also spoken of by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. You remember the scene? The disciples have asked him, well, what are the signs? And he's explaining to them what would come to pass in the end. So these, this 70th week, this final seven years before the second coming of Christ is a series of sevens we're going to study over the next several weeks. You have the, the seven seals that we'll look at this morning, the seven trumpet judgments, the seven bowl judgments. And we're moving. Last week we looked at the incredible um, joy and blessing and heavenly praise in, in Revelation 4 and 5. We're moving from that 
beginning of this morning in chapter 6, to wrath and to judgment. Let me encourage you to have your Bible out. Uh, I can't read all of the text to you this morning, but we're going to kind of walk through verse by verse. I want you to have your Bible out and follow along with us as we go. Well, the first four seals um, we're going to see here in chapter 6. You remember last week we talked about the seven seals and, and the process of the will at that time? The first four seals are called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, most of us would consider horses to be very majestic and very uh, beautiful, but Billy Graham points out in his uh, book, Approaching Hoofbeats, they are anything but beautiful. They are terrible and terrifying. Why is that? Well, because the scenes you're about to see, the scenes that these four horsemen represent are the most dreadful scenes in history so far. That's what we're about to look at. Well, in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, you see that the first seal is open. Uh, one of the four living creatures we looked at last week, one of those creatures calls out, it, it says in Scripture, in a voice like thunder, in a, in a booming and crashing voice, the elder calls out, come. I want to pause right there and tell you something else encouraging this morning. That elder calling out, come, meant that that horseman could not ride out until he was given permission. All of the calamities that are about to fall on the earth and on humans are under the direction and the authority of God. He is still sovereign. Satan is not going to bring the end to things. God is. The horsemen who are called can't come until they're called, and they're not released until God releases them. So it's all still under his authority and all under his sovereignty. Now, you're going to see the same pattern with all four horsemen in these first four seals, the seal is opened in heaven, and it's followed by the corresponding outcome on earth. Well, look at the first horse in verses 1 and 2. First horseman's on a white horse. He has a bow. He's given a crown, and he rides out to conquer. Now, some immediately uh, jump to the conclusion that this is Christ. He's on a white horse. He's riding out to conquer. Um, they look at Revelation 19 and verse 11 that says the Lord will be on a white horse and he will lead the armies of heaven, will strike down and conquer the nations. But this is not Christ. If you compare and contrast Revelation 19 with what we have here in Revelation 6, you see in Revelation 19 that Christ rides out with a sword. This rider has a bow, but no arrows. Revelation 19 says Christ will be wearing many diadems. What is a diadem? It's a crown that, that is ornamental. It's a crown that has uh, uh, precious jewels and stones on it. It's a crown that a king would wear, and it says that Christ is wearing many diadems. Well, the word here in, in Revelation 6 for crown is a different word in the Greek. This crown that was given to this writer is, is like the laurel wreath that you might win at an Olympic game. It's temporary. It's not going to last. Well, I'd also say to you, Jesus is not the one about to ride out because Jesus is the only one worthy to open the seals. There are six more seals that have to be opened. Jesus also is not one that one of the living creatures, one of the created beings, would be summoned by one of those beings. So th this is not Jesus. This writer is going out to conquer, but notice he has a bow and no arrows. His conquering, his conquest initially is not going to be a military conquest. It's going to be a bloodless battle. What is his conquest? Well, he's going to overpower the minds and the wills of humans. This is not the Christ, but it is the antichrist, the, the false Christ. Going back to Matthew 24, you remember that the first warning given by Jesus to the disciples was this, watch out that no one deceives you. 
you know, in our country as well as many other places in the world, there are masses, great masses of people that are perfectly willing to be deceived. The Antichrist is going to deceive politically, he's going to deceive economically, he's going to promise uh, world unity and peace and prosperity, and, and people long for peace. Some people will, will be willing to, to have peace at any price. And the people at this time are going to continue to ignore God's truth. They're going to willingly follow a false Messiah who promises them a peace that we know is going to be very short-lived. What's happening with this first rider riding out is God basically is taking all the restraints off people, off evil, and he's allowing the deceiver to have his way with people and to accomplish what he wants and have his way with men and women. Well, look at verses 3 and 4. The second seal, we're told, is a red horse. The rider is given permission to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another. This, this rider, rider brings war, not just war between opposing armies. This rider, this red horse, represents raw bloodshed and, and slaughter. It's a result of civil unrest, anarchy in the streets, rebellion, result, assassination, terrorism, mob warfare, gang warfare on an unprecedented level like nothing we've ever seen before, bloodshed. And I would say to you that this is just a, a foretaste of the mass destruction that's to come. A monstrous war is yet to come to the earth. I would say that all the immense stockpiles and arsenals around the world of nuclear and chemical and biological weapons are not going to be wasted. The third seal in verses five and six, it's a black horse, the rider is carrying scales, and, and you hear a voice coming from the four elders, you hear a voice saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. What are they saying? It's gonna take a full day's work to get one person one meal. A quart of wheat is enough for a meal for one person. If you wanna go with a lesser grain, not nutritional, you could go with barley and get, get three meals out of that, but, but it's gonna be impossible to take care of your family. And forget about oil and wine, those luxuries are going to be untouchable. Well, is this famine, this third horse? Well, perhaps, but famine is specifically mentioned in the fourth seal, in the next seal. What we have here is a clear indication that it's going to be difficult to buy food. It may not be due just to shortage. It may be due to economic upheaval, to inflation and, and recession and, and panic buying. If, if you studied world history, you remember in the Weimar Republic of Germany after World War I, the mark became lost value so rapidly it literally would take a wheelbarrow full of thousands of bills just to buy a loaf of bread. This third seal makes it very clear food is going to be very hard to get. There's going to be a lot of worldwide economic upheaval and, and a lot of panic buying and selling. That's going to make it very easy, and you'll see this in chapter 13 when we get there, for the Antichrist to impose rigid controls over buying and selling. Food's going to be hard to get. The fourth seal, verses 7 and 8, is the pale horse, and you see the rider is named Death with Hades following close behind. They're given the power to kill a quarter of the earth by sword, famine, plague, and wild beasts of the earth. Now, let me clarify pale horse. I don't know what picture you have in your mind, but in Greek, 
The word used here translated pale is chloros. It, from chloros, we get the words like chlorophene and chlorine and, and chlorophyll. Those are the words we would get from this Greek word. So what is he saying about this horse? He's saying it is a sickly pale color. And, and literally, and hopefully never you've seen this before, it's the color of decomposing flesh. So as this horse goes forth, death is going to claim the body and Hades is going to claim the soul of a quarter of the earth's population. Well, how much is that? Can we wrap our minds around that this morning? How much is that? We're, we're not quite, worldwide population is not quite 8 billion. So let's just round it at 8 and say a quarter of the world's population, 2 billion people will die as a result of this horse riding forth. Well, how much is 2 billion? You know, we have seven continents in our world. North America is a continent. South America is a continent. Two billion people would be everyone on the face of North and South America. Times two. Two billion people will lose their lives. Look at the four forms of death. He says the, the sword, what is that? Of course, it's more war, more murder, people killing each other without cause or without justice. Just imagine what even decent people do when food becomes scarce and, and the mayhem that that causes. It's going to be famine, widespread starvation, plagues. You know, with all the death and destruction that's going to be happening and, the, and of course, the crumbling of society, disease is going to be a natural result. Sanitation is not going to be adequate. There's not going to be enough drinking water. Humans will be weakened physically. They'll be very susceptible to disease. Of course, that will spread rampantly through large cities. Those plagues that he's referring to could also be the result of biological or chemical warfare. Wild beasts. Now imagine this, animals of prey will multiply rapidly with all these other things happening during this time. You've got death and decay and, and disease, and that's going to cause, and, and food shortage, the animal kingdom is going to grow rapidly out of control. Let me just mention one small member of the animal kingdom that could wreak havoc at this time, the rat. Do you know that more people have been killed by disease from rats than in all the wars in history. Average rat carries 35 different diseases that would affect you and me in, in a mortal kind of way. And so the rat population may take a lot of people out, and of course the rats would destroy any food supply that there is. One commentator has suggested, and I don't think this is far-fetched, that wild beasts might also refer to uh, military and political leaders. The word used for beasts is, is a word similar to the word that we would use for a man. So it may be very possible that some of the death caused by these wild beasts are caused by military and political leaders. We know the reign of the Antichrist are gonna be, is going to be vicious and brutal. Life is going to be very cheap and worthless. And, and can I just insert here this thought that the reason life will be cheap and worthless, it is today, goes back to a decision made in 1973 to abort human life in the womb. It's going to become much more cheap and much more worthless. Now, these four issues we've just looked at, these four uh, forms or causes of death, they're already present in our world today. The, the evil already exists, but the time is coming when God is going to let the evil in our society be carried out to its logical and unprecedented extreme. You understand that God is protecting us in our day, but the time is coming when, when all holds are off. God allows men and women to 
to face the truth about themselves and the evil that is in them. And the purpose of God allowing that is, is to turn them, but when they won't listen to the truth, when they, when they refuse, when they choose to believe a lie, he lets evil operate without restraint. That's what you see Paul referring to in, in Romans chapter 1 when he says he gives them over to their evil passions. He gives them over to what they demand. And that's going to happen here during this time in the tribulation. Well, look in verses 9 through 11. It's kind of a shift the fifth seal shifts from the scenes we've seen on earth to this scene in heaven. John describes seeing under the altar there in heaven the souls of those slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And those souls under the altar are asking God, when are you going to judge those who've martyred us? And they're given, you see, they're given a white robe, the righteousness of Christ. They're given a white robe, but then they're told, rest a little longer. Why? Because others are going to join you. There are others in this time who are going to be martyred. Now, the altar there under is in the heavenly temple. This is a temple that was the model that God gave Moses when he gave him the instruction on, on how to build the earthly tabernacle. And that altar was the bronze altar where the sacrifice was actually made. And when the sacrifice was made on that altar, the blood would run down and under the altar. Those martyrs are not under the altar because they're inferior to others who are already in heaven. They're under the altar because their souls are waiting for others whose lives also are going to be sacrificed for Christ. They represent sacrifice. And let me pause here and say, when I say that others are going to be joining them, the vast majority of those who come to Christ during the tribulation, yes, people can still come to Christ during the tribulation, the vast majority of those will be hunted down and killed. Now, let me say one other word about these martyrs before you think, well, they're not very good Christians because they want vengeance instead of forgiveness for those who slaughtered them. We need to understand that their prayer reflects the mind and the will of God. Revelation 6 is no longer the age of God being patient and merciful and enduring the injustice of men. Revelation 6 is now the age of judgment, not, not grace. But remember, too, that they're still redeeming grace during the tribulation. Those who turn to God will be saved. One other thing about this seal before we move to the six is this seal, that these martyrs who are there, is also a judgment for those on earth. Well, how is that? Well, when you remove God's people, when you remove salt and light, it allows darkness and corruption to accelerate unchecked. It's also a judgment on those on earth because these martyrs were killed, they were murdered by the enemies of God's people, and those enemies, in, in killing his people, they're heaping more judgment and wrath on themselves. Well, the sixth seal, verses 12 through 17. Keep in mind that so far, a quarter of the world's population, two billion people, all of North and South American continents times two, a quarter have already been killed by by war and murder and bloodshed and civil and political and financial unrest and disease and famine and pestilence and wild animals. Those who survived up to this point have, have barely survived this incredible trauma on the earth. And there's more. 
I'm going to read this one because I don't even know how we can envision it. It, it, The the best special effects team in Hollywood couldn't bring this scene, this vision to the screen. Look with me in chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The natural world goes on a rampage when the sixth seal is open. There's this great earthquake. I remember not long after we began our work in uh, southern Peru, that there was a big earthquake in, in Lima, and it, and it went up into the mountains, into a lot of the villages where we were working. And so uh, Ryan Bush and, and Marty Mote and I flew to Lima that next week, and we rented a four-wheel drive truck and headed off into the mountains to check on our villages. And I'll never forget, it was about a seven- or eight-hour drive up to where our villages were, but on the way... There was this larger town on the highway. I don't remember the name of the town. It was somewhere near Chincha Alta. And, and we pulled off. This wasn't a little village like our two or 300 people. This was a large town of, of possibly thousands of people. And we pulled off because as we looked, you couldn't see a building that was still standing. There were a few pieces of walls here and there, but the place had been completely leveled. And we pulled into the town. As you got near where the town square was, there were just rows and rows of bodies stacked out there in that town square. We first pulled in in that truck. People thought we were possibly with their government and began to call out for help. But, of course, as we got closer, they could tell we were not Peruvian. So they thought we were with the international media, and they began to to say to us, you've got to bring us help. Our government's not helping us. We need help. And I thought of that scene as I thought about this earthquake. There will be no help when this quake comes. The magnitude will be unlike anything we've ever seen before. This is a worldwide earthquake. You notice the sun becomes black and the moon turns to blood. That could be due to mass detonation of nuclear weapons, but just think about the simplicity of a worldwide earthquake and how many volcanoes would erupt and spew lava and ash into the air. The sun is going to become black and the moon look like blood because all of this debris uh, that's in the air. Verse 14. Every mountain and island is removed from its place. I I can't conceive of that, can you? Every mountain and island, he's talking about the whole world, every mountain and island will be moved from its place. I would suggest if you're hearing my voice today, you probably don't want to retire to Hawaii. Verse 13, the stars of the sky fall to the earth like ripe figs. Uh, Luann has a friend, actually a church member, has a big fig tree, and we go pick figs. And, you know, when they're ripe, you just barely touch them. They fall off in your hand. He's saying the stars fall like a ripe fig tree, and a gale comes, and they just fall. And the Greek word here for stars can refer either to stars or things like meteors and, and, and asteroids. Well, how devastating would that be? You know that about 35 miles east of Flagstaff, Arizona, is the most well-known, best-preserved crater in the world on the planet, and it was likely caused by an asteroid. Let me talk about that crater that one asteroid caused. When that asteroid hit, it excavated 175 million tons of rock. How much is that? 350 billion pounds. 
blown out of that hole. Craters 4,000 feet of cross. That's eight-tenths of a mile. 4,000 feet of cross. Between 550 and 700 feet deep inside that crater, you could fit 20 football fields. One asteroid. Imagine what a shower of asteroids might be like. Look again in verse 14. He says, the sky rolls up like a scroll. I, I don't know how to describe that. It's this phenomenal atmospheric disturbance that the sky just literally rolls up on itself. Incredibly altered appearance. I can't imagine standing and, and watching that happening. And, and, and what's behind that? What do you see when the sky rolls up on itself? But you know the most astounding thing about this seal to me? When all these things are happening, the most astounding thing to me is the response of the people. Look in verses 15 through 17. The kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free. It, it affects everybody. It affects everybody. Everyone, listen, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? You see this? They acknowledge that what is happening is that the day of God's wrath has come. They know what's happening. And they'd rather die and be crushed to death than to face his wrath. But why would they not just cry out for mercy? In the midst of all these signs and all the calamity and all the terror, grace is still available. But listen, these people have refused to believe for so long they've reached the stage where they cannot believe. They're not going to repent and turn to God for salvation. They believe that death will just allow them to escape into oblivion, and they have no idea that when they die and when they enter eternity, that eternity without God will be even worse than this terror they're experiencing. Whew. Is your heart pumping, racing? All this frenetic activity and, and adrenaline pumping and heart racing act, action like a, like a movie, all this activity in chapter 6. Okay, now let's, let's just take a breath. Chapter seven's a pause. It's an interval between the opening of the sixth and the seventh seal. And, and while we pause, let me say this. Please read the book. You, you remember week one in the introduction, we talked about the blessing when this book, Revelation, is read aloud. Back then they had to read it aloud because people didn't have their own individual copy of Scripture. Now most of us have multiple copies of our own in our homes. There's still a blessing to reading the book. And each week on our hub, we, we put the scripture for the next week. If you don't read it before you come, please at least after you've heard the message explained, go home and read it. Read the book. Well, chapter 7 is likely a flashback to the beginning of tribulation. You understand that everything in Revelation is not necessarily in sequential and chronological order. So this is a flashback. Look at verse 1. There are four angels there at the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west, holding back the winds. It's an intense calm, kind of like the calm before a massive storm. If you've ever been 
around before a tornado or even a hurricane or just a huge thunderstorm. You know, there's this calm, and if you're outside, you, you can feel it. You can, you can almost smell it in the air. So even before the intense, well-deserved judgment of God begins, look at this act of, of mercy. Verse 2 and following, you got the four angels with the four corners holding back the winds. Verse 2, it says, another angel with the seal of the living God is going to mark on their foreheads 144,000 Jewish believers, and they're being marked for service. These are Jewish believers who have come to saving faith right at the start of the tribulation. You know, every time I think of this passage, Luann and I have talked about this many times, we think of two men uh, that we know that we met in Israel, not men that we're close to, but Avi Shemesh that we met about 30 years ago, a tour guide in Israel, and Yehuda Heck that we met about three years ago there in Israel. These men know the scripture, not just the Old Testament, they know the New Testament because as tour guides to a place where a lot of Christian believers come, they have to know the New Testament. And we've often talked about, you know, when this time comes, maybe they'll make that connection. They'll recognize that Jesus indeed is the Messiah, that he has come. These 144,000 will be sealed on their foreheads, symbolizing ownership and protection from what? They're going to be protected from the calamities and judgments that are coming. Now, I will tell you, and you've probably heard this, there have been different religious groups throughout the years who have claimed that they were the 144,000. In the past, Jehovah's Witnesses was one of those groups. They claimed many years ago that this was the number, the 144,000 was the number of their group who were all going to heaven. Problem. At some point, their membership surpassed 144,000. So they had to revise their theology. Well, clearly, Scripture says it. These are Jewish believers, and they're going to be on earth during the tribulation. What is their service? Well, God is giving Israel the opportunity to finish the mission they had failed to complete previously when he called them to be his people. He's giving them the opportunity to be his missionaries in the final days before Jesus returns. This gospel will be preached to all the world, and then the end will come. Well, look at the balance of chapter 7. It tells us of the great blessing that God puts on these 144,000 and the success he gives them. What happens? You see this great multitude in heaven. They're standing before the throne in the Lamb. They're clothed in white clothes and the robes and the righteousness of Christ. They're waving palm branches, symbolic of victory. They're singing salvation. They're saying salvation belongs to our God and the Lamb. And the angels and the elders and the four living creatures are falling on their faces in worship. Verse 13, an elder comes to John and says, who are these? Where are they from? And John says, sir, you, you know. Look what he tells them. These are martyrs from the tribulation. Many of them brought to faith by this 144,000. Again, what we see is in the midst of great wrath and judgment, there's also mercy and grace. Look at verse 9. This multitude could not even be numbered. They're from every nation, every tribe, every language. This is perhaps the greatest evangelistic harvest ever, and it happens during the pouring out of God's wrath. 
verses 16 and 17 says, the multitude will, will serve God. He will shelter them. There's no more hunger, no more thirst, no more suffering. That, that's all the things they have been through. They've been persecuted and suffered for Christ. No more of that. The lamb will be their shepherd and guide them to springs of living water. And look, God will wipe away every tear. What chapter 7 is, it's an incredible picture of grace and mercy from a loving God in spite of man's ongoing hatred and rebellion toward him. Now, very quickly, first five verses of chapter 8. All this activity, six seals have been opened. There's been joyful noise of, of, of praise in, in heaven. But look at verse 1. It says, when the final seal, when the seventh seal is opened, there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, I try to tell you what I see and understand Scripture to say, but I also say, hey, sometimes some theologians or commentators will say this. I will tell you there are some theologians, that, this is not my personal belief, but there are some theologians who believe that chapter 8, verse 1, there was silence in 7 for about half an hour, reveals that there will be no women in heaven. Please don't turn me off. I don't believe that. Not that foolish. There's silence. It's mysterious. It creates intensity and it creates anticipation for some excitement, maybe for some fear. The, the silence in heaven is like the silence in the hallelujah chorus. You know how it builds and builds and builds and builds and all of a sudden there's nothing. You know the chorus, you know there's one more giant hallelujah to come. So there have been these shouts of praise, there have been songs, there have been music, there have been lots of activity going on in heaven, and, and suddenly everything stops. But it's not over. There's one final triumphant blow to come. We're at the seventh seal. That seventh seal secures the inheritance. You remember the wills had seven seals. God's will is being accomplished. Well, what, what is God's will being accomplished? It's the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's not just a line in the hallelujah chorus. You find that in Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So the silence is intense anticipation. It, it, it's an awe of God, of the awesome display of his power that's already been seen. It's also foreboding. The worst is yet to come, and that's a sobering realization. You see, the seventh seal unleashes the seven trumpets and seven bowls of judgment. The world's already been through famine and plague and war and bloodshed. A quarter of the population's been destroyed. Then this worldwide earthquake and falling celestial bodies in the sky rolling up and absolute heart attack-inducing terror. But there's more to come. You see in verse 2, the preparation is made for the seven trumpets, judgments. 
verses 3 through 5, he talks about the golden censer. You may remember this from last week. That's the container for burning incense that the priests would use. That incense would rise as an aroma, a fragrant aroma before the Lord. And, and that incense is equated to the prayers of the saints. So the burning incense you see here in verses 3 through 5 is, is symbolic of the prayers of the saints. They're imploring God to act. And the hurling to the earth is that the prayer is going to be answered, that it's time for God to act. And you see it's, it's accompanied by peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. God is going to act. Because there's one unanswered prayer that still needs to be answered. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.